This is Leah Jones, Director of Financial Planning at Hightower Bethesda. Thanks for joining me today as I explore topics that I hope arm you with the ability to make smart financial decisions. So I am here today with Heather Hostetter. She's a partner at Hostetter Strength. Our topic today is implications related to financial support when the woman in the marriage is the primary breadwinner. A little background on Heather. She's a family law attorney located in Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, She deals with, among other things, uh, primarily issues of custody, support, and property allocation. She has a long list of awards and recognition, so I'm just going to mention a few. Since 2013, she has been named a top divorce lawyer by Bethesda Magazine. In 2017, 2018, and 2019, she was recognized as a top 10 attorney in Maryland Super Lawyers Magazine. And in 2020, she was ranked number two in Maryland. She was elected to the prestigious American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers in 2012 and the International Academy of Family Lawyers in 2013, for which she is going to become their treasurer in June of this year. She's skilled at all methods of dispute resolution, negotiation, mediation, collaborative law, and litigation. So today's topic is interesting and particularly relevant in the D.C. metro area as we do have, you know, tons of women that are the primary breadwinners. So thanks for taking the time today to discuss. And for those uh, that are listening, I think you'll get some great takeaways from this conversation. So let's get started here. Alimony and child support work in both directions, meaning that if the woman in a marriage is the primary breadwinner, she's going to be on the hook for financial support, potentially alimony and definitely child support in the event of a divorce. So I know you're seeing this more and more often. Let's start with the alimony side of things. Can you tell me about some of the considerations that are at play in determination of alimony support? Absolutely. So alimony comes into play when one of the spouses doesn't have enough money to support themselves and the other spouse has enough money to support themselves as well as um, the ex-spouse. How long it goes on and how much it is and whether it's even awarded in the first place is evaluated if the two people can't agree by a judge. And they look at a long list of factors that are part of a statute, part of the law. How long you've been married? Is it anyone's fault that the marriage is breaking up? What have been each spouse's contributions to the marriage, monetary contributions and non-monetary contributions to the marriage? Is it going to take someone a period of time to ramp up in their career until they can become self-supporting? Or do they need more education in order to become more self-supporting? So the court looks at all those things. And then if the court determines that alimony should be awarded, the court then has to determine what type of alimony. In Maryland, we have two forms. We have rehabilitative and we have indefinite. Rehabilitative is Let's take the example of, let's say I have my BA and I was a preschool teacher before marriage. And now that I'm getting divorced, I want to teach in Montgomery County public schools, but I'm going to need to get my master's in order to get hired. So I'm going to need support that allows me to go back to school, get my master's, support myself while I'm getting my master's, and then maybe even some support as I work my way up to the pay scale a little bit until I can be self-supporting. 
that's rehabilitative and that's what's favored under the law. Like judges are supposed to award rehabilitative over the second type, which is indefinite. And indefinite is under that same scenario, I've gotten my master's, I've got a great job at MCPS, I'm making $85,000 a year, but my spouse to whom I was married to, let's pick a significant period of time, 20 years, makes $800,000 a year. And the court then makes the determination that the disparity between, that it would be an unconscionable disparity for me to live on $85,000 a year after such a long marriage while he lives on $800,000 a year. Now, another thing that comes into play in that determination is what kind of property am I leaving with? And when we talk about property and divorce, we're talking about not just like your house, right? But we're talking about bank accounts, your share of a brokerage account, your share of retirement. You know, am I getting enough of that property that that mitigates against that unconscionable disparity in our incomes? Or is there not enough, enough property to, to mitigate against that? And it's not uncommon, I would say, in this area to um, represent people who they like one person makes a lot of money, but the family has lived a very high standard of living and there isn't necessarily a ton of assets to divide. I mean, sometimes it's a function of not only have you lived at a high standard of living, but like, you know, maybe you're only in your mid forties and the expectation is, you know, if you'd stayed married, you'd be fine in another 20 years, but you just haven't amassed, right? That wealth yet. So, and you're never, if you're the economically dependent spouse, gonna have the kind of wealth for your earnings that your ex-spouse is to amass those future assets. So what can we do to, to even the playing field a little bit though? The goal is not to even it, right? Like the person who earns more money, they leave with that, right? Which is awesome, often one of the most valuable resources in the marriage. And they're, they're going to, even if they have a dip down, they're likely going to have a bump up in their standard of living long-term. Right. That makes sense. So I think, and you mentioned this in one of your considerations, but does fault really come to play at all in this equation? I would say most often not, right? Which is, you know, when people are getting divorced and they actually need a court to decide it, these are people who are not getting along by definition, right? And so, and definitely at least one person, if not both, is going to think it's the other person's fault that they're getting divorced, a common example I would give you is if someone's committed adultery, so have had sex with somebody other than their spouse, they're going to claim that's a reason why they should get more alimony. I very, very rarely see um, additional alimony given for fault. You need a more extreme example. I've had extreme examples of someone who's bad, like a serial number of affairs, maybe had a whole second family the wife or the husband didn't know about, You know, spent tons of marital money unbeknownst to the spouse on, you know, affairs or that second family scenario, but it has to be something pretty very um, extreme. unusual. Yeah, yeah. Very extreme because, right. you know, my experience, the court's sort of like, well, you're here for a reason and it's probably both of your faults, right? It just right. manifested in different ways. And so that's just not going to be a big driver of the money. But I mean, I understand why that really upsets people because they're, you know, if you really feel like you're the innocent spouse in this, right. Um, you want someone right. to take your side. You so want to someone speak. to take your side. <laughs> and also I think it's, I will say, I think it's kind of confusing to people. Like, why is it in the law if you're not really going to get anything for it? Right. Right. Like, right. why is it there? It's really there for like the more extreme examples, right. So that it's an option available. Right. Okay. That makes sense. 
Another question is, you know, at what point, we're talking about alimony here, but at what point does alimony support come into play, so to speak? I think people ask themselves this question. So if I married for one year, you know, does that make my husband eligible for alimony claim? So there's no age cutoff, but the length of the marriage is a factor. That's one of those statutory factors, legal factors in alimony. So we typically think like a short-term marriage, I would say one to three-year marriage, particularly with no children, you're not going to see alimony given unless it's an extreme situation. And maybe even like I would say, like, let's say, you know, you married your husband, he was from a different country and he moved here for you. And it took him the length of your marriage to get his green card. And so he hasn't actually worked in three years. So it's a short marriage, but he hasn't worked in three years. Like he's going to get some temporary alimony to get on his feet, but it's not going to be much and it's not going to be long. But in the typical circumstance, you're not going to owe any alimony. Then over time, right, as you see time increasing, if you see there are children, if someone has stopped working or is working less, those are the factors where it's a sliding scale where you start to see it becomes more likely that you're going to get alimony. Okay. And the kids, like kids involvement independent of the alimony decision, or does that persuade it one way or the other? So I would say to you that, you know, there's child support that gets paid for children. So like there is a separate pot of money that's dedicated for supporting children. We often think about those children when we're thinking about alimony because that's typically when you see one partner has stepped back either entirely or reduced the amount that they're working, which then directly impacts their ability to support themselves. And often that is that partner's person who has stepped back. That's their non-monetary contribution to the marriage, right? Which is they've taken care of the kids, taken care of the household. For which yeah. there's no monetary contribution, obviously, within the marriage. Okay. So let's talk about that a little bit more. How do you see this dynamic between women being the primary breadwinner and the support they receive at home from their husbands come into play? So I think that's the dynamic that's a little bit different than the traditional rubric from which we saw alimony. So the, you know, the traditional rubric was men were the primary, if not only breadwinners in the family and women were attending to the children and the house, which enabled, you know, in that traditional format, the husband to propel himself in his career. And the idea was then, you know, if they got divorced, he would need, basically she paid it forward and, you know, she would need support after that from him. Something that that I hear a lot from my current female breadwinner clients is that they're like, hey, the thing is, I didn't get the traditional wife. Like my husband was a consultant. You know, they kind of use air quotes when they say that, right? Like he was a consultant. He really earned very little money, if any. And you think that then would have been a logical extension for him to then pick up the slack, at, you know, back at the ranch. But that didn't happen either. I had a full-time nanny. I had a cleaning person. I'm the one who left the note for the nanny every day and, and talked to the payroll service, payroll service and made the play dates and still made the brownies for the school party. And my husband didn't do any of those things. So like, why am I having to pay alimony? Because I didn't actually get those services, right? Like I understand that concept, but I didn't mm-hmm. actually get those services. And they're understandably upset about that. But one of the things I would say to you that sort of goes into the court dynamic and deciding that if if it has to be left up to a court to decide is that 
the court's position is, but that's the system you set up. Like the system you set up couple was he wasn't earning that much money and you were right. And that has had a detrimental impact on his ability to earn future money. So I hear you that you're like, oops, I made a mistake, right? Like, whoop, that was not a good choice, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're not going to have people on welfare because you, you know, basically created and then tolerated the situation. And that supported. Supported. And supported. Yeah. Exactly. So I think, I mean, definitely, I can tell you uh, one of my least favorite moments during the initial consult with the female primary breadwinner is when I have to deliver the one to like, you're going to owe alimony and, and you're going to give them support. half and well, child support and half your assets, like oh, yeah. half your retirement, right? Like yeah, half the brokerage account. Like, I mean, people, it's like, you know, their brains want to explode and you know, there's, I mean, to be fair, right. There's plenty of men who I tell the same story to who are like, what? Right. But I would just say to you socially, because that's been the norm for so long, even though men don't like it, they're more socially conditioned to accept it. Right. Where women are flabbergasted, had no idea this was going to happen, and are just so mad. Because again, they're also like, you know, these women often come to me like they're exhausted, right? They've been working so hard to earn all that money. And they were, you know, I call them the CEO of the family, right? They, they were making sure everybody had clean undies and those brownies for the party and the nanny knew where to take everybody. And they're like a desiccated sponge. And now they're like, and there's no relief. Like, okay, I'm not going to live with them anymore, but he's still basically going to be on my payroll doing nothing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Really. It's just, you know, emotionally devastating. Yeah. I think um, you made a great point about the traditional, male breadwinner and it's assumed that the his partner is picking up all those responsibilities with the kids in the house and it probably happens 90% of the time you know i'm just making up numbers but probably a higher proportion of time that 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 actually happens but yeah in the reverse where the woman is a primary breadwinner i would say you know maybe it's 50 maybe it's 40% of the time that their, you know, male counterpart is picking up those responsibilities. So certainly can imagine that that would lead to more frustration. And I think the other thing you had said to me is that even if the woman proves bills for childcare and that the spouse didn't do much as a caregiver, and if the spouse was unemployed or underemployed, they'll still get the alimony. So I think that's just a key point is that you can't go in and make the argument and have proof to support the argument that your spouse wasn't doing a lot to support you or the family and have the judge or whoever, you know, necessarily agree with you. So I think that's a key point. Absolutely. No. Cause again, the court is, you know, quite likely to be like, Hey, particularly if you're the primary breadwinner, like you seem like a smart person, like, you, you know, like eyes wide open, like you were not an unwitting participant in how we got to where we are in terms of like one person making all the money and one of the other adults being independent. And we can't, we can't fix that for you, you know, this late in the game. Yeah. And I know one thing you had said as well is that the court basically says, well, you should have taken action sooner, right? So you kind of sat 
on the sidelines and allowed this situation to be what it was. And so therefore you're supporting it. So why shouldn't you support it in the future, which I found that very interesting too, because, you know, just knowing a lot of working women um, myself and being one is that you just do what you need to do to survive every day. (laughs) Whether, whether you're making a conscious decision about whether you like, you know, the dynamic between you and your husband or not, you're just doing what you have to do. And so it's just interesting, the interpretation of that when it does come to alimony and child support. So, and I mean, one of the things I would say about that, that I think you could extrapolate to how people feel or the, the phenomenon of divorce about issues other than alimony is that, you know, everybody has an internal narrative about their marriage and your internal narrative about your marriage, Leah, is probably, I'm sure you'd be shocked, quite different than your husband's narrative, right? And like right. people who stay together, like there's overlap, right? But there's actually a lot, like, because we just don't access that inner monologue, right? That mm-hmm. of our spouse. And so, so a little bit the court's position is like, I'm not judging what you were thinking, ma'am, but like, I'm not you know, whatever you were thinking and whatever your husband was thinking, the reality is I just have to look at what happened. Actions. Right? Yeah. Like, Actions what, speak like, louder here's than what words. Happened. Yeah. Exactly. And and to me, this is one of the things I think is so great about you doing this podcast, which is one of my things that I'm interested in as a divorce attorney, aside from serving my individual clients, is like I, I want people to have more awareness of the law. Mm-hmm. Marriage is a legal relationship. It comes with legal responsibilities while you're in it and if you decide to get out of it. And it does not necessarily honor, and in fact, more often than not, does not honor the bargains you make in your marriage, explicit bargains, right? Unless you literally wrote it out, called a prenuptial or a postnuptial agreement, or the implicit bargains. Like in your head, you're like, well, I'm just going to work really hard and I'm going to do all these things because he's like trying to launch this business that then never launches, right? So that's just not how it works. And I feel like that's just one of those huge lessons that I put in the chapter of the book in my head called being an adult is overrated. <laughs> You're like, why did nobody tell me about this? Um, but we're telling people today. Right. Well, I think that's another key point that really stuck out in the last time we talked about this, which was that inner monologue of your relationship and what you think it should be. And, and it changes, right? So when you're dating, you have expectations, right? This is going to lead to X, Y, Z, or we want to have kids, or we don't want to have kids, or we want to get married, or we don't want to get married. And, you know, you feel like you're on the same page because you move down that path. But yeah, I'm not sure that the financial part is as big of a conversation with people as it should be. Uh, And even if it was, it can change. I, I mean, I've seen it all the time. I'm sure you have as well, where there was one situation and for whatever reason, didn't necessarily have to do with marriage, could have dealt with the kids, could have not. Things change and then people feel differently. And one person's making more money and is there a collective decision that let's just throw all our support behind that person? Or was it not really a collective decision? And then, <laughs> and then at that time, how do both parties feel about that? So I think that's a really important dynamic to that, especially women becoming the primary breadwinner needs to focus on because I don't know how many women go into a marriage saying, I want to be the primary breadwinner. I want that responsibility. I'm comfortable with it. I want a husband to support me. I hope more women do, to be honest, because there's no reason why 
they shouldn't. But I don't know that how many actually do. It's more kind of it ha- it happens at this point. It just ha- um, it just happens. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. one thing I want to say to you is, you know, there's plenty of men who have come to me who've been the primary breadwinner who say, I mean, yeah, it was. I mean, it was good that my wife stayed at home, but like that's not really what I wanted. Like that's what she wanted. And I felt like I should support her. And now I feel like I'm being punished for the fact that I supported her in her choice. Mm. And, but I like, I didn't really have a choice, right? Like I had to work. So I mean, there's an aspect of this that goes, you know, goes across the gender line, which to me goes back to exactly what you're just saying, which is whatever choices you want to make in your marriage are fine. The ones you will probably least regret are the ones, you know, if you're being upfront with your spouse. About On like, the same page about what is, you're doing. It's a conscious exactly. decision. <laughs> it's, and, you know, I get to see this play out a little bit sometimes in prenups, which is when somebody comes to me for a prenuptial agreement and, and let's say I have the economically, I'm going to have the economically weaker person, right? And if it's the woman and I say, do you think you might have children? Do you think you might stay home? And she says to me, yes, yes, yes. And I say, okay, well, let's try and build into this agreement that you're going to get adequate support, right? If you get divorced. I'm like, is that something your husband wants to? Yes. Well, I can tell you nine times out of 10, when you go to negotiate that agreement, you can't get the future spouse to say, oh yeah, I'm definitely going to like adequately support her on the back end if we get divorced. Like, oh no, part of the reason why I'm doing the prenup is like, I want to control like how much money, right? goes the other mm-hmm. way. And so women then say to me in that circumstance, oh my God, like, what should I do? Like, should I not get married? And I'm like, I don't think you don't, I don't, don't think it means you don't have to get married, but now you know how he feels. He doesn't actually value it. So don't stop working, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's not a shared value. And I'm telling you what the legal consequence of that's going to be, which is like, you have a great education. And even if you're out of the workforce for 10 years, you know, if you're a reasonable age, the court's going to expect you to get a job. So take that information and understand it going forward. Like you actually cut a break. A lot of people don't get, which is they don't get a preview of what the person thinks. So like now, now, you know, and like act accordingly. Yeah. I think that's really great advice. And since we're kind of on that topic of negotiating, how can negotiating together, and this is, you know, after you're already married and it's not working out versus letting a judge ultimately decide, how can that work in couples' favors? So there's lots of things that you can do in a negotiation that a judge can't do. So first of all, I mean, you and your spouse know your family better than the judge is ever going to know. The best of judges who listens intently during a case is just not going to know your family the way that you do. And the court is also limited by the law in terms of what the judge can do. So for instance, a lot of times if you're negotiating alimony, particularly when there are, it's going to be a long-term alimony situation, the person who's receiving it wants it securitized. So meaning they want there to be life insurance that, that an event that the payor spouse dies before the alimony term has ended, they're going to get life insurance to pay them for the uh, remaining amount of alimony. No court in Maryland can order that. No court in DC can order that. They just don't have the power. So that's something that makes sense. And, and often, you know, payor spouses already have it. They have it through work or, you know, the couple got it when they got married. And the whole idea is like, you know, this is what's this is how your children or your spouse is going to be supported if you die. So let's agree to make that available to the other spouse. But like, there's lots of things like that that you can do that make sense. The other thing is, is you're managing your risk. I mean, judges have a ton of discretion 
in a warning alimony. I mean, I jokingly say, but I know lots of my divorce attorney colleagues agree with me that alimony is the last frontier. So what I mean by that is like, nobody really knows what a judge is going to do on alimony. I mean, you can go to these continuing legal education classes and you'll have six judges on the bench doing family law. You'll give them the same alimony factual scenario scenario and you'll ask them what would they do and they'll give you six different answers. All different right? answers, yeah. All different answers. So like <laughs> you want to manage your risk, right? Like two good divorce attorneys can give you a like, here's the range, right? Like right. here's the range on the amount, here's the range on the number of years. Now again, like the range could be, hmm, it could be seven to 14 years. But I mean, look, you could get a judge who took what two attorneys think is a seven to 14 year range and make it a three to indefinite alimony range, right? So it's really, you want to try and, I mean, like all things, you want to try and work it out because compromises you choose are going to be the ones you better live with than the ones somebody else chose for you. Choose for you, yeah. I totally agree. And I think the other thing that's interesting is that in these female breadwinner scenarios, sometimes you see like more of an inherited bias play out. And I know you mentioned that even like with judges. So that's kind of an interesting X factor too, to take into the equation. There's, so there's a lot of inherited bias that goes both ways, right? So like, I think for women, right? Like they, I found them to be, you know, more emotionally upset at the notion of paying alimony. They feel like they've worked harder than their male counterparts, which undoubtedly they have to get where they are. And they also feel less you know, empathy, right. <laughs> Towards their male counterparts in terms of like, they're sort of like, Hey, like, I think a little bit, right. You encounter women who are like, like, you're a man, like, why didn't you get a job? Like, why didn't you make more money? Like I didn't sign up to be this primary breadwinner. Though I'm also going to say on the flip. So on the flip side of that, you know, I just finished a case where I had a male alimony recipient and he really did play the role of like, did the child care you know, they moved like four times. I mean, he was really instrumental in the advancement of her career. And he felt ashamed, not actually about what he did for his family, but because of how he knew he was going to be perceived in court um, mm-hmm. as if like what he contributed wasn't important. And, and I did say to him, like, I think it's totally possible a judge is not going to be realistic about like why you don't have a job or why you can't make more money at this mm. point in the game where if you were a woman, it would have been much easier. Like yeah, much that, slam dunk. So. that ego factor and that also, you know, that inherent bias that people have that that's more of a woman's role. Yeah. wouldn't exist. So yeah, that's very totally. interesting. Right. But I mean, I'm also going to say to you, like uh, going back to the, you know, to the female breadwinner. I mean, I also say to my female breadwinners, look, you know, you could be the case where judges like, oh yeah, like I'm ordering that guy a good alimony package because like in their head, they're evening up the score for all the times <laughs> they've awarded women really great alimony packages. Like right. they're like, I'm doing, Hey, the shoes on the other foot. Like this is what's fair. Yeah. Like these are the things like, that's not how you want someone to decide your case. You want them to be looking at the individual merits of your case. But the reality is, is like we all live in the world where we're having all these experiences and we have these thoughts about like, justice and progress, right? And, you know, people do things in service of those bigger goals, even if they're doing it unconsciously. Yeah. And I think to your point, you don't, you just don't even want to get to that situation. You want to be the one calling the shots and at least agreeing to to something that makes sense for you. Exactly. 
Let's talk a little bit about child support and how this plays into the overall financial support equation for the breadwinner, because this is a huge, you know, a huge part of it as well. Yes. So, you know, if they're children, you're going to pay, you're going to pay child support. So in DC and in Maryland, there's a formula for child support, but in DC, it's only presumptive for combined incomes up to $240,000 a year. And in Maryland, it's only presumptive up to combined incomes of $180,000 a year. So what, what does that mean, presumptive? What okay. that means is when you put the incomes into the calculator, which would include the spouse's receipt of alimony, if those two incomes are under that threshold, the number that the calculator spits out is supposed to be the number unless there's some extraordinary circumstance why the judge can justify a deviation from that calculated number. In both jurisdictions, if your incomes are in excess of those threshold amounts, the 180 for Maryland, the 240 for DC, the math still works. It extrapolates, right? So you can still use that calculator, but the court's not required to use the calculator at that point. At some point, if the incomes are really high, the calculator spits out a ridiculous number that nobody thinks is right, right? It's like too large. In which case, judges in both jurisdictions are supposed to look at what are the children's actual expenses in both households? What is each person's proportion of the overall income? And allocate it and allocate it that way. To me, the point of this in the context of an alimony conversation is to say the good news, I think, for the payor spouse is the court understands it's all one pot of money, right? Whether we call it alimony or whether we call it child support, it's all coming from the same paycheck, right? Mm -hmm. So they have to bear relationship to one another. You can't decide one in isolation of the other. So you decide alimony first, and then that sum of money, which has come from the payor side, right, the pot, is now on the payee side. And that is factored into how much more he or she needs, the payee needs, to support the children. And that has become, I would say, even more true now that the tax law has changed and alimony is no longer deductible by the payor, right? Mm -hmm. Which means the payee, the recipient, no longer has to include it on his or her tax return as income, right? Right. So, And child support was always non-taxable, right? So now basically everything is coming over from the payor side with after-tax dollars. Right. So whatever the payee is getting is tax-free. Exactly. Right. Right. Which is, that's a big benefit. From a practical sense, how does this work in terms of actual execution? So I think a fear that female breadwinners have is that they're paying child support and it's not actually going to the child. On top of that, they might be paying hundred percent of the childcare costs anyways. Yep. So this is also a classic complaint that we've heard from um, male breadwinners for a long time, which is like, how do I know the money's actually going to the kids? So child support is supposed to go to core expenses. Like you live in a different house because you have children, you buy more food because you have children, you have more utility expenses because you have children. Also supposed to cover specific kids' expenses in your household, entertaining them, clothing them, buying them school books. Often couples agree in it outside of that core amount that gets transferred that they're going to split certain things in proportion to income, unreimbursed medical expenses. That's actually required to be split by the law. Work-related childcare, that's also required to be split by the law. But then people often add things to that, particularly here in Montgomery County. 
extracurricular activities, which can be really expensive, driver's ed, ACT prep, right? Mm-hmm. Because these are things that are going to happen regardless of who the children are with, right? Like it's not just going to be during your time. And they're often what I call budget busters, right? It's like, you're going to pay ACT prep once, but it's a lot of money, right? And so you're going to share that expense. Sometimes what the dominant wage earner wants to do is they agree that they will pay 100% of those things in exchange for paying less of the core support. And that works in some cases, right? So some people who are receiving the money are like, great, like I'm getting a smaller amount, but I don't have to deal with any of those budget busters. And I know I have a predictable amount that I know I can live on. Some people, however, who are receiving that money are like, no way, I'm not going to do that because they're like, one, they're like, they hate the setup where the economically dominant spouse is sort of, is is the one with the money. Like the kids are like, that's the person to be dependent upon, Mm -hmm. right? And they feel like that's not great for the parent-child relationship where it's like, looks like, you know, mom or dad is, you know, waiting for their allowance too. Right. And they don't have any economic dominion over whether you can do horseback riding for two weeks or a month. Mm. And some people are also like, I'm a grown up and I can manage my own money. And so, nope, like I want what I'm supposed to get for child support. You know, whatever my proportionate share of those expenses are, I'm just going to make one up. I'm, you know, 30%. I'll just pay for that as it comes along. Like I can do it. But you definitely see the payor often trying to gravitate towards the, let me pay more of the extra stuff because that sort of satisfies that itch about like, it's really going towards the kids. Okay. Yeah. That's very interesting stuff right there. In witnessing this more and more frequently, what advice would you give to women who might find themselves in this situation? So I would hearken back to what we talked about earlier, which is I think people need to talk more before they get married. I think they need to talk more while they're married and particularly before they have children about what the expectation is in terms of what everyone's going to bring to the table in terms of caring for the kids, caring for the household and earning the money. I think it would not be unreasonable for primary breadwinning women who that wasn't sort of the original plan, but that becomes apparent that's how it's going to go, right? Like maybe you're just, you know, you're a real superstar and, and you're going to really just take off in your career. And so that dynamic is going to change in your relationship in terms of who's bringing in the money. Well, you know, you could do a post-nuptial agreement at that point. So a post-nuptial agreement is like a prenup, meaning it's dictating what happens if you get divorced. It can also dictate what happens if you die. And, but you do it, it's called a post-nuptial if you've done it after you've been married. And so you lay out, like, here's what's going to happen. Like, that's a way to manage your risk. Like, here's what I'm going to do. You're not going to get a post-nuptial agreement from your husband if you want to stay happily married to him, where he basically leaves with nothing, right? (laughs) Right? Like, you're going to have to do something that's fair, but maybe it can be better than what the law might allow. Or how about this? Maybe it's not better than what the law would allow, but it's predictable. Like, you know, that's what you're signing up for. And I think that gives a lot of people comfort. And then to me, the other thing would be, you know, you might find yourself in the circumstance that I gave before of of the fiance who finds out that in her prenuptial agreement, her future husband is not going to agree that she gets a reasonable amount of support if she is a stay-at-home mother. He's not going to agree to that in advance, right? Mm -hmm okay, that's information. Like your spouse doesn't value that. Your spouse isn't intending to really support you in your career. So should you stay married or, you know, are you going to make, maybe you're like, well, you know what? Like 
I'm not going to give up five years of my life of like not going to school plays and all that other stuff that I would have liked to have done with my kids and had more work-life balance so that I can really kill myself to make a ton of money for this family. If actually that's not what the family as a whole values. I mean, information is power. And then you have an opportunity to make choices based on information, not based on assumptions, secret thoughts, and wishes. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think one thing that, that you had also said to me, which was really important, is continuing to stay in the marriage and not taking action is implied consent. So it's yes. hard to argue after many years of inaction that you weren't okay with it. So I think having that in the back of your mind, you know, I guess whether you're the male or female breadwinner, but in particular, if you're the female breadwinner and you feel like your partner's not doing very much to support you is really important because that inaction is implied consent. And I don't think that women consciously think about that until they come have a conversation with you. And then they're like, Oh no, <laughs> shoot. Right. No, that's, it's totally right. And I mean, and the thing I want to give voice to is, Look, that's going to be a really hard realization to come to. And, you know, nobody wants to get divorced, you know, sort of as an abstract concept. Nobody gets married to get divorced. That's for darn sure. And so that would be a terrible realization to come to. And I just want to acknowledge, like, that's then also like a terrible decision making point where you're like, okay, like, okay, this isn't going to change. And so my only way to really protect myself is to get divorced if my spouse won't change what he's going to do or won't sign a post-nuptial agreement. But I think you just have to weigh that with like, yep, but, you know, think about, try and think about like how you're going to feel later. And I, I mean, I'll just say to you, like, I've, you know, I've spoken to, you know, many group, I've been asked to speak at things like, a, you know, association of women dentists or groups of professional women. And when I say in the room, like, hey, by the way, like everyone here is going to pay alimony, <laughs> right? And, I mean, the gas, right? Uh, right. No, you know, comes over the rubber chicken. And I think like, yeah, right. Like, okay. So now, you know, right. So you got to think about, think about what you're going to do because you're gonna, if you don't think you're going to stay married, right. Or you're worried if you didn't stay married and you know, lots of people come to me and they had an inkling years before that like the marriage wasn't going to last. Yeah. Right. You don't I mean, think, of, you don't rarely. just think about it and then make the decision the next day. Right. Mm-hmm. Very rarely. Yeah. Very rarely. Yep. So it's interesting, but I mean, to me, this is sort of all part of, I mean, it's kind of perfect actually for um, COVID-19 time which is, it's about, you know, really conscious living, like understanding what you've signed up for, Mm -hmm. like what you're doing and moving forward with that, with the knowledge of the consequences. But again, I want to say with my heart full of sympathy, like this is just the hard part of being an adult, which is like, sometimes they're not great choices. Right. Well, I think, but at least you won't be surprised. Yes. Right. You can spare yourself that, like, Yep. Yeah, exactly. So key points, you know, narratives change within a relationship. Make sure you're on the same page about it. Make sure you're evaluating it. Make sure that you, um, you know, document it if that's what it needs to come to. Don't take inaction and just think it's going to work itself out because most things in life, if you don't take any action, don't work themselves out. And know that there are things you can do. I'd never heard of a postnuptial until talking to you. I didn't even realize that was a thing. And it's, again, probably a hard conversation to have, but if you feel yourself going down that path of, I'm really not happy with this, 
it would at least provide some comfort and some clarification of your roles and potentially save the marriage. Whereas if you don't, you're going to go down that path and then you're going to be really angry about it. So I think absolutely, you know, and one thing you could do, which, you know, relates to something that you do, which is, you know, you could go with your spouse to the financial planner and like have somebody do some projections. Like if only I'm earning, (laughs) right. Versus we're both earning, like, what does this look like? Or if we got divorced and we had to split this money, like how long would this last? I mean, sometimes actually like looking at the facts of, you know, what are the likely outcomes also help people make better choices. Great. Well, on that note, Heather, thank you very much. Very informative. A lot of great pieces of advice. And women, just so you know, if you're making the money, if you're the primary breadwinner, you're not off the hook. So, you know, these decisions you make are going to have real financial implications and uh, just go into them knowingly is, is the bottom line. So thank you so much and uh, keep safe out there, everyone. Thank you. Hightower Bethesda is a group of investment professionals registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. Hightower Bethesda and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of Hightower Bethesda and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor for related questions.